episode 159, Medical Storytelling in Pursuit of Patient Outcomes. Today I speak with Dhruv Kular, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Dr. Dhruv Kular and I discuss the manifold ways that medical storytelling can be used to oil the wheels of shared decision-making and work toward the outcomes that matter to patients. Medical storytelling also plays a role when healthcare organizations want to align care teams around a standard of care, and it can help clinicians and other care providers understand longitudinal patient data. Finally, it also can be a help when trying to explain thinking to colleagues. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Drew. Thanks for having me. You wrote a couple of articles, and in one of them, the Letting Patients Tell Their Stories article, you related a very touching anecdote about an elderly Greek man in the ER. So before we get into the whole what's and the wherefores about medical storytelling, could you relay what happened there and kind of what you realized in that moment? Sure. So this was a, an experience I had a couple years ago now, and it was an exceptionally busy night and I was working in the emergency department. And when you're in the emergency department on a Friday night, there's all sorts of things going on. People come in after car accidents and heart attacks. And so this was one of those nights where I just couldn't catch my breath. And in the middle of it, there's this older gentleman who's lying in a stretcher in the hallway, kind of quietly minding his own business. And I look over his chart and I see that he has prostate cancer and it's gone through a lot of uh, chemotherapy and it's been resistant to it. He's got tumors all over his body. He's been vomiting everything he eats and drinks for weeks. And he had a recent stroke. Last month he had a stroke and so he can't move half of his face. And I walk over to him and he just smiles at me with this crooked smile. And he says, well, it hasn't been the best month of my life. And so I start asking him about what brought him in and and what his symptoms are like. And he keeps trying to just have a conversation with me. So I say, how have your symptoms been? He asked me where I went to medical school. Do I have a girlfriend? I ask him if he's dizzy, whether he has blood in his stool. He says that he came over from Greece 50 years ago, and he had studied electrical engineering. He got a scholarship to MIT. tells me about his wife, who's a great cook, but who unfortunately recently passed away. And uh, throughout this experience, I am so focused on the medical aspects of things. And so I ask him, you know, when was the last time he moved his bowels? And finally, he just looks at me and says, you know, son... I'm dying. I'm alone. And one day I hope you learn that there's more to a good death than how often I move my bowels. And that's when I really, it really struck me that I'd been training to be a doctor for more than a decade. And I'd gotten so good at certain things, you know, reading CT scans and doing procedures and diagnosing and treating things. But I kind of lost this skill of uh, understanding who my patients were and kind of placing them in the context of of their lives. And I think it's something that is incredibly important, both for kind of diagnostic purposes, understanding who a person is, what they've gone through, but also therapeutic process. People find a lot of value in, in hearing their stories and telling their stories. And it was one of those experiences that really made me 
uh, recognize that this is kind of a, a lost art at times, but an incredibly important part of what we all do in healthcare. If you were going to define medical storytelling, how would you define it? I think there's a number of ways to, to define it. At its heart, I think medical storytelling is kind of the art of using narrative to explore either some important issue in medicine, to make a point about the way that things should be, to change the way that people are thinking about receiving medical care or providing medical care. And storytelling, I think, in medicine is really central to what we do as physicians, as clinicians, and the ability to understand who a patient is, what they've gone through, and then present that case to other people that are caring for this patient is, is vital. And we use stories to uh, help patients understand their own conditions and why we're ordering diagnostic tests and treatment options. We use stories to turn patients' data and medical evidence and clinical history into one coherent narrative that makes sense to ourselves and our teams and families and providers. And so I think this idea of storytelling is critical to everything that we do in medicine, but it's not always something that we realize. And therefore, I don't think we often use them as effectively as we could. So I'm deducing that there's a couple of kinds or flavors of storytelling that we're talking about here. One of them, as we have just been discussing with both your example and in what you just said, is this patient to doctor kind of storytelling. It's the doctor elucidating from the patient what the patient's story is in an effort to really understand the whole patient and the context of you know what is valuable, what matters, what outcomes maybe matter to the patient relative to what they're going through. And then the second one is kind of physician to themselves, <laughs> turning patient data into a narrative that makes sense and, and is able to be relayed because nothing for nothing. I mean, it's you don't have to take too many psychology classes to stumble upon somebody saying that, you know, humans recall and process information vis-a-vis -vis the narrative. Absolutely. Are there any additional categories here? Yeah. So I like to think about storytelling in healthcare in three big buckets. And the first is the one that we've been talking about. And it's the most obvious, I think, storytelling kind of being at the heart of medicine to help patients understand what they're going through, what they might be going through in the future, to help clinicians and hospitals and people within the medical field share information in an effective way. But I think the other two levels are less obvious, and they have to do with inspiring certain changes at a higher level. And so the other one that I would point to is uh, around organizational change. So inspiring change within an organization, I think, requires stories as well. And there are different types of stories. So this might be within a clinic or a hospital or a health system. We know that getting people to change their behavior is extremely difficult. And that is particularly true in health organizations for a number of reasons. One is that people are already overwhelmed by the amount of work that they have to do in a very limited amount of time. People have developed very particular workflows and practice patterns that they're resistant to change. And patients' lives are quite literally at risk when we're introducing these changes. So under these circumstances, I think there's two kind of important and synergistic components of inspiring an organization to do something differently. And the first is, is data. So the first is having evidence, and that is crucial to getting people on board 
with a new initiative, whether you want to change the way that people order medications or you want to get people to discharge patients earlier from a hospital or pull central lines out when they don't need them anymore. But the other part of this, and I think the part that's overlooked, is that you need a narrative that inspires people to actually do the thing that you want them to do. And so that requires us to understand how patients uh, would be affected, how this is making patients' lives better. That part's really important. But it's also about helping people understand how this fits into the identity of your organization and how it fits into uh, our identity as professionals. So for instance, let's say you want to get medical providers in your clinic to start screening patients who are lonely or socially isolated, just kind of asking them a few questions so we can identify patients like that and we can help connect them with with other folks. Uh, so you might have a PowerPoint with a bunch of data. You might say that Americans are now twice as likely to be lonely as they were a couple decades ago. More people are living alone than ever before. Many patients don't even have one person that they can talk to about important issues in their life. And social isolation is a social determinant of health, and it's really important. But I think what inspired me, at least, to get involved in an issue like that, and I think what would inspire others, is not really any of those things, per se. It's, it's the stories of the patients that you have to bring to light. So, Last year, I wrote an article about uh, a patient that I saw in the hospital who was very, very ill, and he had maybe days to live, and he knew it, and I knew it. And I asked him if there was anyone that he wanted to see, anyone that he wanted to talk to before the end. Was there someone I could call for him? And he said that there wasn't one person. There wasn't one person in the world that, that he wanted to talk to or that he was close enough to that he wanted to see before he died. And so I thought about this, this man that was literally on his deathbed, and he'd lived his whole life, and now at the end, he had no family, no friends, no one that he could kind of share a final word with. And that really struck me. And so every day I see kind of variations uh, of this, both for people who are at the beginning of their life, at the end of their life. And so I think it's that kind of thing, those types of stories, when they're paired with data, you might actually get doctors and nurses and other peoples within an organization to change their behavior. And, and part of what I hope to do is kind of merge stories and data to make that happen. What I recall when you are talking about this is, and this was a long time ago, so cut me a little slack here, but in school taking a marketing class, and there's a quintessential case study that everybody always looked at, and that was with the ASPCA. They ran two campaigns, one marketing campaign, and this was in the olden days of direct mail. So they ran one campaign soliciting charitable donations, and it said on the envelope, 100,000 dogs die every day of starvation, send a contribution. That did not do very well. But mm -hmm. one of the most successful marketing campaigns, not only that the ASPCA ever ran, but just also in the history of direct mail, was their next try in which they put a picture of this doe-eyed, sad-looking, you know, emancipated puppy on the envelope. You just look at that picture and a picture tells a thousand words that are probably a story. So I think that also is emblematic of what you're saying, that if you want to inspire action, that people have to really be emotionally connected to what's going to motivate that change. And that's going to be a narrative. 
Absolutely. So part of this, as you're saying, is kind of change within an organization, but there's also change kind of at a policy level or a government level. And that very similarly requires the type of thing that, that you're talking about, where it's, it's not just X number of people are affected, but we need to talk about one of those, those people to get people to really care emotionally about the issue. So I often think about, for instance, folks that are trying to stave off repeal of, of the Affordable Care Act or something along those lines. And they often lead with things like, you know, 20 million people would lose health insurance or 16 million or 24 million. But I guess the point that I'm trying to make is, is does it really matter? Is anyone who is okay with 20 million people potentially losing health care going to change their mind because now it's 22 million? Probably not. But I think what might change people's minds are kind of stories of just one of them or a handful of them. One aspect of, of changing policy or, or, or government action is bringing those smaller stories out into the public narrative and getting people to think a little bit more deeply about them. I'm taking notes, my friend. So we have the, the patient to doctor that we talked about. We've got organizational change as another category of storytelling and then also government action. And then maybe as a corollary to some or all of these, we have what we were talking about earlier, which is physicians enabling vis-a-vis creating internal stories to understand right. longitudinal data. Part of the last bucket, at least on, on the governmental or policy or societal level, then also becomes you know, how do you tie those stories to a larger narrative about who we are as a health system or who we are as a country? What values do we all hold dear? What makes us New Yorkers or Virginians or Americans? You know, what do things like life, liberty, and, and happiness mean? Does liberty include the liberty to live your life and be entrepreneurial and change jobs and raise a family without constant fear of medical bankruptcy? And I think using those individual stories, but then tying them to a, a larger narrative about what it means to live in our society, that's where the real power of stories come in. And here's an interesting kind of sidebar, and maybe it's another category. We'll have to decide that. I was swapping emails with Jim Cluse Salisbury, who is a listener of this podcast and a social worker. And he was saying that there's another aspect of storytelling, which is a really powerful concept. This area that he was exploring was actually having patients tell their own stories, you know, kind of fictional, like a year from now, this is who I am and this is who I want to be. Because actually stories have such an enormous impact on the storyteller that if someone starts talking about what they want their story to be, that goes a long way to making it true. I think that's absolutely right and such an important part of this as well. You know, there is research to back up this kind of finding as well in that People derive a lot of meaning if they're able to put the events of their life, whether they're good or bad events, into some kind of coherent narrative. People who are able to think about what they've been through, uh, ascribe some kind of meaning to that, tend to be happier and more content with how things are going, even when they've gone through really trying experiences. And so patients telling their stories or families telling stories can be important in two ways. One is that it helps doctors and nurses and other clinicians understand what kind of person and who they're, they're caring for and who they're treating. But it also has tremendous therapeutic value for the patient who's able to think about, you know, what does it mean to go through this experience? How will it change me? What kind of person do I want to be 
on the other side. And so I think that's a really important part of, of storytelling in medicine. There's a lot of talk these days about value frameworks and producing outcomes that matter to the patient. And I could imagine on the clinician side of the equation that it would be very difficult to get to the place where a patient can concisely articulate what does matter to them. Right. So I'm thinking that it could be an excellent use of storytelling, you know, either in the past, present, or future tense to figure out what is the context of care here, which is an essential ingredient to getting to the place where shared decision-making can happen, for example. Definitely. And, you know, a lot of these decisions within medicine are very complex and they're filled with jargon and it can be difficult for a lot of people to kind of understand and weigh their options and make decisions about quality of life versus quantity of life, especially at the end of life. I think a one way to get around that issue is to help people tell their stories, to tell their clinicians and their families about stories that have been important to them, stories about when they felt most alive, when they realized that X was more important than Y to them. By having those conversations that don't necessarily need to center on whether you want mechanical ventilation or whether you want this surgery, we can still glean a lot of information about the type of person someone is and help them through a lot of these really difficult conversations that often occur at the end of life, but don't always occur at the end of life. They occur throughout the care that we give patients even earlier on. Do you have any sort of tips or advice about how to develop this skill set of soliciting or elucidating stories from patients that can lead to all these beneficial results? So the first thing I would say is that we in medicine as doctors often do 90% of the talking. One thing that I've tried to adopt in my own practice is to kind of think, at least keep a mental ledger of how much of the time during this conversation am I doing the speaking and how much of the time am I doing the listening. And if we're able to change that dynamic and, and at least 50% of the time the patient or their family should be talking about what they think about the issue or how they feel and what they're struggling with uh, in terms of this decision or with the treatment that we've proposed, I think that's really an important part of changing this, this paradigm. I think more broadly, I think what I would say is that when then doctors or other healthcare leaders are trying to implement some kind of change or do something differently within their, their communities or their organizations, I think adopting a motto of kind of no data without stories and no stories without data. Each time you're making the case to someone or to some organization, making sure that you have that two-pronged approach where you have the data to back up what you're saying. We should do things differently. We should do things in this way or that way. But secondly, you have the stories to uh, inspire people to change, to see things differently. And so I like to think of it as data and evidence. They help point the direction of which way we should go, but stories are often what move us to get us there. And so practicing that skill as well and keeping that in the back of your mind at all times, I think can be really helpful. Is there a pedagogy around this? In other words, if I wanted to get trained in the art of medical storytelling, is that a thing at this juncture? Or is it kind of like, I mean, there's plenty of books on just general, how do you use storytelling in business or in marketing, you know, is the best we can do at this juncture to read those books and piece it together? 
Well, I think there's a few things I would say. The first is there's a framework that I found really helpful in kind of taking stories and, and trying to create change with them. And it was a, a framework that's developed by this professor at Harvard. His name is Marshall Gans. And he was a community organizer for decades. And he basically says that uh, every good story that changes something has three main components. It has the story of self, it has the story of us, and it has the story of now. And so the story of self is your own story. And it kind of describes your own experiences, your own values, what uh, led you to this point. Why do you feel compelled by this issue? And the second part of this is connecting your own experience with those around you, with the values of the people that are in your organization. And that requires kind of identifying who those people might be, who the other champions on this issue might be, but then telling kind of a collective story that, hey, these are the values and experiences that move us. And the last part of that is the story of now. That refers to kind of the challenge that you're hoping to address. And you have to kind of make sure that you identify why it's urgent and what actions that you're recommended, what what is your motivating vision for change. And so by thinking about it very systematically, the story of self, you know, why am I called to this issue? The story of us, how does this connect to the people in my organization or in my community? And the story of now, you know, why is it urgent right now that we change something for the better? So I really like that kind of framework. More broadly, one of the things that I think is most important when we're trying to learn how to do medical storytelling better is reading about it. And that's the way that I've always learned about this. And there's a number of kind of fantastic academic authors and medical journalists, both in the lay press, but also many medical journals where physicians write stories about their personal experiences. JAMA has Peace of My Mind, New England Journal has Perspectives, Annals of Internal Medicine has uh, On Being a Doctor. And so taking the time to see how people are telling stories in those places can be really effective. And then finally, it is becoming a greater part of medical schools and hospitals. And so for people who might want more formal instruction. There's increasingly narrative medicine courses and even departments in some universities and medical schools. There are narrative medicine groups in some hospitals that meet regularly. And so there are really important uh, opportunities to learn and develop this skill, I think. And do you think it's one of those sort of life skills that it's up to individuals to cultivate? Or would you suggest that at an organizational level, that this is such a key principle that it should be something that organizations are actively train every, you know, we all get trained on various processes. Is this important enough as a skill to develop at an organizational level? I think it's critically important. And I think it is what ties everything together. So I think too often we try to get people trained on kind of narrower aspects of their jobs, a particular process, a particular way of, of doing things. But stories and this type of leadership is what ties everything together. It's how we make sense of things. It's how we communicate to those around us. And so I think it's a, an absolutely kind of vital part of what all organizations should be doing, whether they're in healthcare or, or outside of healthcare. And if I'm the leader of a healthcare organization and what you're saying is resonant with me, like I'm like, I get it. Do you think that it would be wise for me to encourage my team to use storytelling? I mean, we're all innately social creatures and can probably figure out how to piece together a story or ask questions that might elucidate a story. 
But is there danger in doing so without necessarily training in the art of medical storytelling? I don't know if we need to expect people to be kind of fully trained uh, in the art of medical storytelling. What I would say is that we in the scientific community have kind of a natural tendency to be wary of stories and anecdotes. And anecdotes can lead us astray. And we we want data. We want randomized controlled trials. Uh, and I think that is appropriate most of the time. One of the goals of evidence-based medicine is to use data to drive decisions about management and treatment and not use anecdotes. And so I think there's some danger in, you know, I don't want to come off as saying that stories are somehow more important than, than the data. I, I think we need both. One of the dangers that I want to kind of flag is that you still need to have evidence and data and, you know, kind of hard uh, facts to drive important organizational change. I guess what I would emphasize is that that is where we've spent most of our time, appropriately so in many cases, and we haven't thought deeply enough how to use uh, stories to then put all those facts and that data into a manageable framework that makes sense to people and that drives them to do something better. Well, in that same vein, an anecdote is data. It's a kind of one, but it is actually data. And then the other thing I think that might get lost here is that, as everybody in this industry knows, you know, medicine is an art and a science. And part of that art is maybe hearing an anecdote and thinking to ourselves, huh, how likely is it that this scenario is common? Like, for example, exactly what you were talking about earlier about the social isolation. So you heard that story from that elderly Greek man in the ER thinking about that as it's like Razor's Occam. You know what I mean? Like that's likely to be pretty true. What is the harm of generalizing or looking out for for people with similar stories and then using that as a basis to make decisions moving forward? One of the dangers of stories is that they are extremely compelling and they can be sticky and they uh, are what we remember. And so kind of in, in the cognitive sciences, we know about Uh, recall bias and availability bias, meaning that if you saw something happen recently, it's on the top of your mind and you're more likely to make decisions based on that. And so they can be very powerful. And so when people are making decisions, for instance, one decision that we're constantly making in in medicine is about around blood thinners. And so if people have certain abnormal heart rhythms, we give them a blood thinner so we can try to prevent a stroke. Now, obviously, if you're on a blood thinner, then you're more likely to bleed. And so people often have GI bleeding or other forms of bleeding. You know, let's say we tell a story or a patient's neighbor happened to have a really bad bleed and went to the hospital or another patient's neighbor had a really bad stroke and that's what happened. And that might really uh, influence which way my patient decides to go, whether to take the blood thinner or not to take the blood thinner. Even if you know, I can kind of explain that their risk, hey, in your case, the risk of the stroke is actually higher. You should be on the blood thinner. Maybe that patient's recently been exposed to a story of a, of a neighbor or family member who had a bad bleed and, and would not take the blood thinner. So I think there's some danger because stories are so much more effective at times in people's minds when they're making some of these decisions. And so that's why I think we need to be cautious about the way that we use it and we need to base our stories and the evidence for particular patients and particular organizations. 
But I think that also speaks to the need to make sure that there's a counter narrative at the ready if a patient does come in with that predilection. I'm not sure if that's the right word, because, you know, if my neighbor just had a bad bleed and now the doctor is telling me to take a blood thinner, what's probably going to be more compelling is a counter narrative. Another story about the opposite situation, as opposed to reading the package insert of the medication. Sure. No, I think that's absolutely right. You know, you could tell them, hey, your risk of a bleed is 2%, your risk of stroke is 5%. That's probably not going to be as effective as telling them a story that counteracts the story that they've already been familiar with. So I, I completely agree with that. And I know that one of the things that you had mentioned earlier as something that you'd been thinking about as a clinician was the risk of telling a story that wasn't entirely true. You're trying to come up with a composite example, but you might be kind of weaving together a narrative that is proving the point that you're trying to make, which might not actually be actual events. Yeah. You know, the stories that that I write, they're all true generally in the sense that those things happened. What often has to happen is a lot of the details need to be changed or adjusted so that you don't identify who the patient is. And so at least the the stories that I write and and, uh, a lot of my colleagues are writing are events that have happened, but we may substitute one type of cancer for another cancer, someone's hair color, things that aren't pertinent to the point that you're trying to make. You try to change some of those identifying details. It is important to maintain fidelity to what actually has happened in the clinical setting. Which reminds me of actually pharmaceutical advertising. Mm-hmm. You know, because as I think about it, the direct consumer pharmaceutical advertising that goes on, they're all stories. I mean, you see someone dancing through a wheat field in the height of allergy season, <laughs> you know, their communing with nature looks very complete, you know, and, and then you get someone thinking to themselves, well, I want to be that person. Like, I like that story. Right. Well, I think this gets back to the point that you're trying to make is that then some of those medications are extremely effective and that's great. When they're not or when the benefit is marginal or not going to be great in this particular patient, then we have to have counter narratives. We have to have counter stories that talk about some of the side effects of these medications or the cost of these medications. And so, you know, I like the point that you made earlier around sometimes you need those stories that push back on the stories that people have already bought into. So if someone is interested in exploring this topic further, I know you mentioned, what was his name, Gantz? What was his first name? Marshall Gans at Harvard, G-A-N-Z. Marshall Gans. And I know you have a number of articles about this topic as well, but where would you recommend that people expand their knowledge of how and when and why to tell stories? One of the most important things is I consume a lot of reading material. And so I think even if you select a few kind of good publications that you're going to take the time to read some of the stories that doctors and other clinicians are telling. I think that is a a really important part of uh, understanding how this is done and how it's done well. And so that could be one or two academic publications that that publish this kind of work. And it could be a few kind of popular press publications. There's so many blogs and uh, newspapers now and and health-specific journals that I love reading. And that's the first thing that I would say. And then if you want a little bit more formal instruction, there's certainly classes and and so on. But a good place to start is just to see how people uh, who have been doing this for some time, how they go about laying out 
stories, how they lay about the facts, and how they kind of create some kind of meaning by putting all these pieces together. I read a quote that someone said recently, and I'm going to forget the person's, I'm going to completely forget the attribution, but I'm also going to forget exactly what they were talking about. So take this for what it's worth. <laughs> but kind of the point was, they were talking about something relative to patient collaboration, you know, of which I would regard storytelling as an essential ingredient. And the point mm -hmm. was that if there was a drug that produced the results or an intervention that produced the results that this produces, it would be malpractice not to use it. Mm -hmm. So it, it'll be interesting to see the path forward as, especially with value-based care and as outcomes become more transparent, that things like this, which really underpin to a large degree, or let's just say in certain cases have as significant a contribution to outcomes as, as perhaps some clinical intervention, be interesting to see how systematized and continuous improvement worthy these types of knowledge areas become. That's a great point. And we need to do a lot more work on kind of elucidating some of the effects of these types of stories and these types of maneuvers. And so there is interesting evidence on, on things like the Angelina Jolie effect. And so when Angelina Jolie wrote an op-ed in the Times about, uh, about breast cancer and her experience with it, we saw a spike in genetic tests for breast cancer across the country after she made that declaration. Uh, when Katie Couric underwent a colonoscopy in 2000, uh, after her husband passed away from, from colon cancer, there was a spike in colonoscopy rates in certain states around the country. And so these increases in things like colonoscopy rates are things that even our best educational campaigns in medicine haven't been effective in getting a 20% spike in colonoscopy rates in, in some areas. And so I think it's a great point about trying to quantify some of the effects of what's often thought of as kind of a softer art of storytelling, but it really has tangible impacts. And so the next kind of generation of work in this area needs to try to quantify some of this work that's being done. And where can people go to find the articles that you have written in the past and the ones that you will write in the future? A lot of my work now is in, uh, in the New York Times. And so I had been uh, kind of previously writing for, for the Well section of the New York Times. And now uh, I'm mostly writing for the Upshot these days. And so if uh, folks want to check out some of my writing and, and some, uh, some stories that have inspired me to, to take on some of these bigger issues, that would be the best place to start. Dr. Dhruv Kular, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks so much. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.